a stirring musical tribute from Jesse L. Martin, and a riotous performance by the cast of the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. Next on the 59th Annual Tony Awards, here on CBS. And we're back. Welcome back to the second half of our coverage of the 2005 Tonys. With me, I have Tim, as always. Hello. And we are welcoming back Isabel. Hi. (laughs) While we're having a great time, um, I would like to point out that the Tonys at this (laughs) period of time have been having historically low ratings. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know exactly who this ceremony is pandering to because they kind of called out in this article where I got these statistics that, um, you know, they were trying to get people in by having celebrities like Sally Field on them, so. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, cool. (laughs) And I think that the Aretha Hugh performance that we see in the second half might have... Should we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. That performance is crazy. Like, it's pretty fun, but I think it's really kind of backhanded that they did that to celebrate Sondheim's birthday because he always talks about how he does not like West Side Story and is, like, not proud of his work in it. And specifically doesn't like that song. Yeah. Like, all the, he's, like, the misaccents alone. <laughs> yeah. So if they really wanted to give a tribute to him, they should have done, like, a little priest or something. <laughs> oh, my God. Those two doing a little priest would have been so freaking cute. <laughs> I know. Like, bring out a deep cut. Have them do some, you know, freaking too many mornings. Right, because that is extremely in-memoriam energy. Speaking of in-memoriam... They have Jesse L. Martin doing Razzle Dazzle. And now, with a special musical tribute to the Broadway legends we lost this year, please welcome Jesse L. Martin. which is in honor of Jerry Orbach, who died that year. And Jesse L. Martin played his last partner on Law & Order, which is sweet. And also Fred Ebb died, as we mentioned uh, last episode. John Kander still kicking as of this recording. (laughs) (laughs) We're rooting for you, John. (laughs) Hundred or bust. But the other thing with this decision to celebrate Sondheim with um, a song from West Side Story feels especially funny in a year of two Sondheim deep cut going through the Sondheim archive of reviving Pacific Overtures and kind of, I don't know if it's technically a revival or a reworking of a really early Sondheim show, The Frogs. But yeah, I mean, and Sondheim has always had kind of a cantankerous relationship with the Tonys, which it seems like they're kind of playing into yeah right he is not the fuck there yeah he's not there they picked a song that he would not be happy that they were singing Since we skipped over it last time, like it's order in the ceremony, should we talk about lighting the piazza now? Yay! Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very afraid to talk about this because I don't want to talk about how Adam Gettle is such a bad man. You don't want to talk about it? I mean, we have to. I'm just... Uh... We're going to talk about it holistically, how we would have felt at these Tonys. So I think the, the group opinion of this show is that we all really like it a lot. But so here's the deal. Let's take it back to 2003. (laughs) So this show was in development for many years. And Adam Gettle, who is the grandson of Richard Rogers, um, of Rogers and Hammerstein, and is a very talented and also uh, notoriously very troubled individual. So there was this profile of him in the New York Times that was like during the development of Light in the Piazza, and it was called A Complicated Gift. Um, And here's a little excerpt 
Though his drug use has only been whispered about in theater circles, Gettle's reputation as a Lothario has been brooded almost proudly. Even his father told me, not exactly censoriously, about the dozens of lovely spurned ladies spread all over the pavements of Manhattan, one of whom supposedly wrote a musical about him, featuring a number of embittered ex-girlfriends. His mother sharpened the point. I mean, let's face it, he has the sexual proclivities of a satyr, or of his grandfather. It seems that even in his worst traits, Gettle will always be compared with Richard Rogers, who betted any chorus girl he could get his hands on. I know I've hurt a lot of women, and I feel terrible about it, Gettle says. It's easy to get away with things when you have money and people think you're attractive. Also, when you're verbal and have ready access to silken prose, which only sometimes reflects what you're really thinking. I hope that phase is over. Because there's a point at which, being unhappy for too long, you become irrevocably unkind, like my grandfather. I'd like to be happy, if only to be able to be kind. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Wow, I didn't realize Richard Rogers uh, went down in history that way. So the profile also talks about how he has struggled with addiction since he was a young teenager. And at the point of the profile, he's maybe like two months sober. But he talks about it. You know, he, he doesn't feel very confident in his sobriety. So there's that. And I think there's like a larger conversation about, you know, like addiction and, and what people do while they're using and like how they kind of, you know, amend their life mm-hmm. later on. But it seems like he has not done that <laughs> because uh, most recently um, during like the new Supreme Court hearings, he tweeted in defense of Kavanaugh and said that his accuser was probably lying, <laughs> which I think in light of like that paragraph makes it seem like maybe he uh, relates to Kavanaugh somewhat. Yeah. <laughs> also, if whoever has any information about that musical his ex-girlfriend wrote, please, yeah. <laughs> please send it along. I would love to know more. So there's that. And then once he tweeted those things, because he keeps kind of a low profile on Twitter. So once he tweeted that, everyone was like, what? <laughs> what the hell? What are you talking about? And I and other people went into his likes on Twitter and like the people he's mm. following and he was following, like, you know, Donald Trump Jr., like, Tommy Lahren, James Woods, like, all of these super, super right-wing, like, crazy conspiracy theories. He was, like, liking things about how, you know, immigrants are going to lead to, like, white genocide and, like, feminists Yikes. are, like, <laughs> you know, leading to the downfall of the society. Just, like, all of these super, super right-wing kind of crackpot uh, beliefs and it seems like now he has deleted his Twitter, which is probably because they're about to put up light in the piazza in England. And I wonder, I kind of wonder if there's any, like ever going to be any real backlash to him about this stuff. You know, I don't think so. Adam Gettle had one kind of two major works <laughs> and he has been completely dormant since then. But I think yeah. it's, I think it's more like if he does come out with new work, because it seems like he yeah. has been writing since then. Just nothing has been produced. It's like interesting to see like... If you think about people, and not to put women in the position of being the ones who have to, like, uh, police him, but people like Audra McDonald, who he's worked with before, who is, like, very, very outspoken about, you know, progressive beliefs, like, if she will ever work with him again, like, stuff. I'm just sort of interested to see how that's going to shake out or if it's going to be kind of swept under the rug. Because honestly, if he keeps a low profile for a few more years, which seems like he will, like, I think this will probably... I mean, I don't know what a big splash it made in the community. Um, I actually was surprised because I knew about all of this. And, um, you know, on social media, on Instagram, I had posted, like, a photo, image, screenshot of it. And several people did respond to my story being like, do you know that... Adam Gettle's a bad dude. So. Oh, okay. It's true. I guess the people who know, the people who care all know. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. those Venn diagram, it's a very overlappy Venn diagram. This is just an example of how that kind of massive intergenerational wealth is just poison. Like, it will just poison people's characters and their minds. Right. And, like, I really think that kind of is what the case with him is with him. Um, that's not an excuse for being the way he is. Right. Adam Gettle is not special. No. That's really what it's coming down to. Yeah. And it's, it was definitely tough for me to kind of accept that because I do love this show so much. And for a long time, it was like, I felt like Adam Gettle. And I know a lot of people felt that way. Like Adam Gettle is the future of musical theater. Like he's writing things that are really like complex and beautiful And, you know, he's just doing the work in a way that not a lot of other people are. But he does have a very limited output. Like, this is his only Broadway musical, and it was 15 years ago at this point, almost. And 
now thinking about it, knowing what I know, like the fact that this particular show was so beautiful, but it does seem like it was in his scope or within his scope of possibility because it's this uh, sort of like outmoded romantic, like takes place in the 50s, like takes place in more rigid um, classical, non-progressive space. (laughs) Right, because that's the other thing where it's like, you know, thinking about it, I feel like a lot of men who do bad things, like, they tell on themselves in their own work, mm-hmm. like, but I think the only thing that really is a clue in this is that it's just about white people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't really get the sense that it's because he thinks it's the master race no. in, this, in this work. No, they're full of folly. Yeah. With that said, we are going to discuss this musical, even... If we have nice things to say about this work in particular, we are definitely not making excuses for him, making excuses for his views. I think we're going to do a certain amount of separating the art from the artist because Mm -hmm. this was 15 years ago. We don't really know the details of what has happened since then. I think if he ever comes out with a new musical, I am not going to be able to support it. But I still feel okay with expressing my love for the show. I don't know about you guys. I think my view on that and something that I've been thinking about this whole week in preparation for this episode is that, you know, a lot of amazing work besides Adam Gettle's, um, you know, music went into this production. And I think that to totally, mm-hmm. in this conversation, to um, underwrite everyone else's contributions would be really unfair because, you know, while his music is beautiful, there are many shows that have beautiful and intelligent and complex music that, you know, aren't as successful as this. So I think that we should celebrate the show and leave Adam's baggage at the door. <laughs> as we say in this house, get all it together. <laughs> but yeah, we could talk about all the magic of a light in the piazza. Yeah. So with that said, let's get to it. This show is based on the light in the piazza. It's a novella. It was by Elizabeth Spencer. Do you want to do the synopsis? Uh, yeah. Set in Italy in the summer of 1953, Margaret Johnson, the wife of an American businessman, is touring the Tuscan countryside with her daughter Clara. While sightseeing, Clara, a beautiful but surprisingly childish young woman, loses her hat in a sudden gust. As if guided by an unseen hand, the hat lands at the feet of Fabrizio, a handsome Florentine who returns it to Clara. This brief episode, charged with coincidence and fate, sparks an immediate and intense romance between the two of them. Margaret, extremely protective of her daughter, attempts to keep them apart. As the play unfolds, a secret is revealed. In addition to the cultural differences between the young lovers, Clara is not quite all that she appears. Unable to suppress the truth about her daughter, Margaret is forced to reconsider not only Clara's future, but her own hopes as well. It's revealed later in the play that um, when Clara was at the brink of puberty, she had an accident that stunted her um, brain development. So that um, kind of explains Margaret's guards. It starred Victoria Clark and Kelly O'Hara and was kind of like a star-making vehicle for both of them. And... And Matthew Morrison, looking young, looking hunky. Hot off hairspray. Yeah, (laughs) singing singing in Italian, singing with an Italian accent and English. A little curly head of curls. Yeah. Um, Catching that hat. (laughs) And both of the shows we're talking about this episode, um, Light in the Piazza and 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, have really excellent episodes about them um, in the Broadway Backstory podcast. Just highly recommend it. Yeah. If you want to shed a couple tears. Yeah, so we're not going to, you know, totally parrot back all the information from that, but we are going to talk a little bit about it. And I think the big thing about this show is that it was under development for a long time, like many different stages, and they kind of kept commercial producers out of it for as long as possible to really be able to um, do justice to their creative vision without pressure from like we need to make this we need to make this more commercial we need to be able to sell it um and that was probably they don't go into it in detail but i feel like that was probably because of adam gettle's deep pockets and connections and i think i'm sure the desire to work with him yeah you know yeah so it does help to have that kind of privilege to be able to 
do your show in exactly the way. It's like theater royalty wants this done right. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, something that surprised me and actually makes a lot more sense is that apparently um, before it came to Broadway, when it was in development in Seattle, it was considered a lot more avant-garde in a way where I don't think that, you know, the orchestra was as big or the sets were as Mm -hmm. literal. And, um, you know, hearing about the development, you know, there were a lot of... I think that as it stands, it's very beautiful and, you know, a very well-crafted piece of theater. But I'm curious about some of these more experimental elements that did not make it into the show. I know. They're talking about the big puppet heads. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And another thing that happened in the development that also affects 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee is there was a little bit of a switcheroo where um, Celia Keenan-Bolger was playing Clara out of town, like, basically from the beginning of the development of the show. And then Adam Gettle kind of, like, kicked her to the curb. And it's interesting because in the podcast, he specifically says it's because the way the score was developing, he wanted someone who had a voice like Kelly's and, you know, like a that kind of, sopr- that kind of light soprano. But in everything I've read about it, every, like people who saw both versions are like Celia was playing it too childlike it was like a little bit creepy and Kelly sort of brought more maturity into it and I think probably both of those were factors but then Celia ended up replacing someone else not only replacing someone else replacing the woman who conceived spelling bee yeah Mm -hmm. as that part and (laughs) it's so funny seeing spelling bee make it to the Tonys and there's really very little mention of that original woman they're kind of like Thanks. The book writer thanks her, but yeah. she's not. She's not in it, and she does not write the book for the original. And no, but she but, gets a credit as like conceiver. Yeah, I'm sure she's getting paychecks she's getting from bank. it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so then Celia and Kelly. Oh, and uh, Kelly was already in the show playing Franca, um, a different character. That character is like kind of like <laughs> cartoon character of like a passionate Italian woman <laughs> right, with like right. cat eyed sunglasses, and it is really Very women on the verge. Yeah, it really. <laughs> I struggled to imagine Kelly O'Hara playing that part. I know, and it seems like she really loved playing it, and was like, "I don't want to, you know, take. <laughs> I her. gotta be this dumb American." <laughs> yeah. She's not dumb. She's <laughs> so sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> not what I meant. <laughs> but yeah, so then they were both nominated for Best Featured Actress that same year. So it's sort of an interesting footnote. But I'm happy for them both. Right. Everyone gets their cake. Everyone gets to show up to the yeah. Tonys and not be jealous. It's very smash. It is very smash. Wow. Do you think that's what that's based on? I don't know. I feel like there aren't that many situations like that where there's that kind of deep, long, gestating drama of people <laughs> of people developing these characters. So Victoria Clark won the Tony that year, and she also won like every other award in the world. <laughs> um, and here is a a little note about her performance um, from the Broadway.com review. What is indisputable is that Victoria Clark has created a character for the ages. Lucas has done a superb job of fleshing out Margaret within the confines of musical theater libretto, and Clark responds with consummate precision and grace. Calling hers the musical performance of the year would be accurate. It would also be a drastic understatement. Mm. Which Lovely. is very sweet. Yeah, no, I, there's just so much music. And she speaks about this a little bit when she's interviewed that, you know, she really saw musicality with kind of the Southern dialect that she um, employs in the character. And it's just absolutely astonishing to see someone embody a character like this. It's hard for me to even think of her outside of the character, which I is know. kind right. of a problem. She's that, so good. I did not see the original production of Light in the Piazza, but I did go to the 10-year original cast reunion concert, and I have never cried more in a theater in my entire life. The whole second act, I was sobbing so hard, and everyone around me was also. I left with a huge headache. It It was so beautiful. It was beautiful, not just because, you know, it was like all super fans in there, but it was really amazing to not only see them do the part, but see them do it 10 years on. And you could tell that they were all very moved to be back together and, and doing that material again. And, you know, it was really, it was just, it was just lovely. It was maybe one of, 
maybe my favorite performance I've ever seen. And yeah. going into this, I knew that this show was a landmark. And um, I know some of the songs that have permeated into the American songbook. But listening to the score and seeing a recorded production of it, I think it's just so rare for me now as an adult to um, find a show or come across a show that really touches me in such a way and makes me feel emotions and reminds me why this art form is so compelling. It's really, I have not seen anything or listened to, had a score touch me in such a way in such a long time. It's been a really special couple weeks with me <laughs> in so, the piazza. I am so happy. I was really hoping you would have that reaction, but I had to keep it down inside me so I wouldn't, I wouldn't push you. <laughs> so here's a nice, this is from a profile in The New Yorker from when it was out of town, I think maybe when it was in Seattle. And it's a really beautiful sort of summary of, of the charms and the themes. Instead of the anodyne commercial musical formula, which promises distraction, the light in the piazza offers a complex contemplation of the well-defended emptiness in every man and woman. Something is very wrong, Clara tells Fabrizio toward the end of the show, as she attempts to break off their relationship. I would fix it if I could, knew how. I can't, she goes on. Everyone has been disappointed in me. I'm the one that's not good enough. You just don't see it now. Confronted with Clara's quandary, we're audibly silent. Not manipulated into frenzied Broadway-style forgetfulness, but roused to reflect on our own unexplainable wounds. What are the mysterious things that hold us back from embracing life or allowing it to embrace us? Can our own forms of suffering be redeemed? To this last question, Gettle's answer is an absolute maybe. <laughs> Give me a little chill. I know. I know. And you know what's interesting about this season is it's the only drama. All of the other right, musicals are, are comedies. comedies. And it really stands in contrast to that and is asking kind of uncomfortable questions. I think that's a good segue into talking about Claire's issues. Because I think that is sort of the icky part of the show that can really be mishandled. I think this original production handles it really delicately. But there was a, even like a Broadway World thread a few months ago that was like, can Clara give consent? <laughs> like, well, no, it's a good question. It is a good question. Because yeah. it's like, and here is a little quote that I think is a good jumping off point from someone who had a critical view of the show and the way that they portray her um, disability. How could anyone begin to convey a child trapped in a woman's body? An authentically damaged Clara would be impossible to act or sing. But a faux Clara, a sweetly childlike Clara, passes nicely on Broadway. The same slow types are touchingly portrayed in Hollywood movies. Clara's problems aren't specified in Light in the Piazza until a belatedly brief reality check from Mrs. Johnson's disapproving husband, who's back home in Winston-Salem. Dad understands the dangers and the deception, but the creators of the musical avoid the real issues as much as the muddled, sentimental Mrs. Johnson. The 26-year-old intellectually impaired Clara, as the New Yorker coyly describes her in another act of avoidance, doesn't appear to be trapped in childhood, a potential danger to herself and others. She's presented as a beautiful young woman who's, quote, special. And Kelly O'Hara does talk about, in Broadway Backstory, how when Sondheim saw the show, he was like, she needs to be more handicapped. And right. so she did, like, a couple of performances where she was, like, grabbing herself and, like, playing with her outfit. And everyone was like, you can't do that yeah. because it's creepy if you're about to... To fall in love. Yeah. yeah. My, my take on it is that, like, I feel like it only works if you... And I think the original production does do this where if you portray that Margaret's protectiveness and kind of clutch on her is more stunting than like whatever actually happened to her, mm -hmm. like what actually happened to her, what her head injury actually did to her. Like that's sort of what is preventing her from growing and maturing that like her mom's guilt and overprotectiveness is what is keeping her childlike. And then once she falls in love and kind of begins to blossom, you see that she's like able to kind of cope and, handle herself better than she was before. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think that this reminds me a lot of The Glass Menagerie in a yeah. way, where, you know, I think there's been a lot of trouble kind of conveying Laura Wingfield's disability. Um, it's not very clearly defined in the actual text. And I think that, you know, it becomes a director's choice and an actor's choice of how they want to portray it and how necessary it is. And, you know, I think in both situations, what you just said, you know, is this person in a position where they are unable to take care of themselves or is their real problem having um, an overbearing mother who feasibly has more problems than um, this person who is, in quotes, damaged? Well, I feel like in all of these, allowing the audience to project their um, ideas about disability and having the actual performance being much more 
Loki is very successful thinking specifically about Violet, about her not having a scar in Violet and yeah, the, yeah. them not being connected in Sideshow. Um, that sort of the more superficial and portrayed the disabilities are, the less the audience is able to focus on what you're really talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. People loved this, right? People said, yeah. ah. <laughs> well, it didn't win the best musical Tony, but it won twice as many Tonys as Bamalot. It played in Lincoln Center, which is like a huge, beautiful, Luscious. lush, yeah, theater. People wanted to hear that harp. <laughs> um, and it was directed by Bartlett Shear, who I don't think had directed anything at Lincoln Center before, and now he is like their go-to. They call him Mr. Lincoln Center. <laughs> <laughs> and he and Kelly uh, have collaborated in those revivals, the Lincoln Center revivals of South Pacific and The King and I. Yeah, mm. and he, I think, won his first and I think only Tony for um, his direction of South Pacific. But um, I think he was with the production. He was artistic director at the theater in Seattle where it was being developed and he came over for this production. And I think that kind of began his director in residence. Yeah. Oh, wow. This was a huge break for him. Yeah. And they Mm -hmm. say in Broadway backstory (laughs) that they ended up going with Lincoln Center because they were the only people who were like, you can keep Bartlett as the director. Everyone else is like, I want to give you someone. (laughs) Basically. Um, Um, So this was like a huge career making show for a lot of people. But it did. It did pretty well. It ran for over a year at Lincoln Center. It went on a tour and they did end up filming it and broadcasting it on Live from Lincoln Center. Um, But only Victoria Clark is in it from the original leads. But Chris Sarandon, Susan Sarandon's (laughs) first husband, is in it. And Joanna Gleason's current husband. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they're the same guy. I yeah. see. <laughs> wow, that guy's got a tape. They're one and the same. And um, speaking of Victoria Clark's win that night, I love in her speech when she mentions um, she's so happy that they didn't give the part to share or Glenn Close. <laughs> Thank you so much for not offering this role to Glenn Close or Cher. They couldn't have sung it. (laughs) Yeah, no, they really could not have. Oh, and we have a question that was raised by the New York Times review. So in the beginning of the review, (laughs) Ben Brantley says, For in the world of singing cartoons and dancing robots that are multiplying on Broadway like flu germs, the middle-aged, middle-class Mrs. Johnson, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. So our question is, what musical has dancing robots that he is referring to? Because I can't. I can't think of anything that would have been on Broadway at that time. The only thing that I suspect is that he's referring to the car in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And his <laughs> review was like, the only star, I bet that car has a bigger dressing room than Nathan Lane. <laughs> um, I think that sounds plausible, but I don't think that the car is a robot. I don't think that it dances. Well, what is the dancing robot to you, Anna? Does it have to be <laughs> a person dressed as a robot who's dancing? Well, I think if he was making a Chitty Chitty Bang Bang reference, he would have just said, you Dancing know, car. Yeah, or like crazy, like flying car or something. It's very <laughs> Programmed picky. to very dance. Very picky. Well, anyway, we're looking for your feedback. If you have any idea what this dancing robot reference is about... You can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com or you can DM us on Instagram. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've been getting a lot of DMs. Oh, that's nice. Um, Do we want to talk about the actual performance at all? Um, Yeah. I, thinking back to it, did see this performance at the time. It was broadcast live um, and I remember being blown away. I think that they do a kind of helpful thing um, in getting Victoria Clark to, and it keeps with the um, vibe of the book where they have Victoria Clark breaking the fourth wall and talking to the audience. But for the past, like, I guess almost 20 years, I thought that she was in Italy doing like a television show. (laughs) (laughs) Because the way that she introduces it. Like, what's my favorite place? Well, I think there must have been mic problems because she's holding a handheld mic for the beginning of it. So I feel like they must have been like, your mic's not working. Like, start with this. And then eventually eventually (laughs) she, like, hands it off to someone else. Oh, that's so funny. I don't think it was part of it intentionally. Yeah, because she has this handheld mic. And I'm like, oh, this is a show about a woman who has a show on, like, the travel channel in the 50s. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> but I now know that that's not true. Florence, Italy. It's my favorite place on earth. The openness, the light. 
My husband and I took our honeymoon here before the Second World War. And this is my first time back. Yeah, so the song they perform is the opening number, Statues and Stories, and it ends with the hat flying and meeting Matthew Morrison. And they do their little, they look at each other in the eyes, and you're like, they're going to fall in love. And seeing some behind-the-scenes footage of the guy that operates the hat, um, <laughs> I think he's the real star of this show. <laughs> I agree. Not all heroes wear capes. Some of them fly hats. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the meat cute that they have, is that a hat that Clara is either holding or wearing flies out of her control and um, very uh, magically lands in Fabrizio's hands. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. It's lovely. It's romantic. And um, my favorite line from this performance is when Kelly O'Hara says, that's a completely naked statue. (laughs) Leonardo, Leonardo, Michelangelo, the start. It's a completely naked statue. (laughs) T'was a dawning day unfurling from the heart. Your first hint that there's uh, something a little off about her. talk about spelling bee now yeah yeah it's time um the 25th annual putnam (laughs) county spelling bee it's so hard not to sing it it opened on may 2nd 2005 so i guess that was probably right at the brink of the cutoff the cutoff for um not being able to be in this particular tonys it opened at circle in the square and ended up closing on january 20th 2008 wait circle in the square does that mean it was done in the round no it was done i think they did it in a thrust circle in the square i think you can do you can either do it in the round or you can make it where it's like it's like on three sides yeah it's on three sides. yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. right because i'd be thinking that's sort of antithetical because there's a lot of chairs sitting no they did not do it in the round okay Sorry. (laughs) No, it's a a good question, though. No, that is a good question. And I think that the way that they did configure the stage, it made it feel like it was like a high school auditorium or... Right. Or so they say. Right, it's funny because the spelling bee is so much like audience stage, like, uh, and it's in two spots. And also, we saw it on tour, and I remember, so that my my thoughts were very... I was trying to remember, did we see it on tour or did we see like a regional production? No, I think we saw it on tour. Okay, because it was really good. It was really good. I remember good. going into it and being like, this is going to be stupid. But I, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was probably like, what, like 16? And I remember really being surprised at how, how sweet and and smart and also like sour it was right. in a good way. Um, and you got music and lyrics by William Finn who um, over the course of the past 40 years has be- been a pretty big presence in uh, musical theater. He's someone that I don't know that much about his body of work. No, me neither. Just before we get into it. So the synopsis is six young people on the edge of puberty strive to become adults in the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, the funny, tender, sardonic musical by the composer of Falsettos. These outsiders use competition to define themselves apart from their crazy families while their struggle to escape childhood is overseen by grown-ups who never completely succeeded in escaping it themselves. (laughs) I know. I know. Christ. (laughs) And it's got that lapine touch. Um, It does. Mm -hmm. Did he write? No, he just directed it. Mm -hmm. But the woman who did write the book for Rachel Schenken, um, she was one of his protégés. Oh, I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. So this had like a very unconventional development where it started as an improvised play where Rebecca Feldman was reading this book about spelling bees and she was like, this is like such a fertile topic. So she had, I think she was part of this improv theater called The Farm mm-hmm. and she had them she developed it by having these people come in. Like she was like, you know, come in with your different characters. Like I'll interview you and we'll come up with this play. So they performed the play and there are a couple of people who started 
in that that were in it to the very end, like through Broadway, including Dan Fogler, who ended up winning a Tony. And so then they did the play and then there were a couple of things. I guess the biggest person who was instrumental in, in taking it to the big leagues was Wendy Wasserstein, who was mm. uh, one of the performers and it was her nanny. Right, <laughs> she like, right, invited right. her to to come see it and she was like I'm gonna connect you with Bill Finn and the rest is history that's such a scrappy story you know like when you have a a ghetto royalty play being nominated and you also have this where they you know yeah it's a real Molly this year yeah yeah no that is a really good point um and I think that this show though a theme that I think it kind of feels more on theme even than light in the piazza for the time period because I feel like um, in a lot of ways, the scale of it reminds me of uh, You're in Town or um, Avenue, Avenue Q. Avenue Q, yeah. It's definitely a descendant of Avenue Q, the way that, you know, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and um, Spam Lot are descendants of the producers. But I think this has aged much better than Avenue Q because it has... <laughs> <laughs> it, I feel like the the sentimental aspects of it are much more grounded in reality and it doesn't, the humor isn't focused on being like super edgy and kind of like they went there, which I think Avenue Q is in a way that maybe has not. That aged, definitely has aged not aged well, well, which we'll get into when we do. Avenue well, Q. Avenue Q is pushing against the, the Muppets and Sesame street. Whereas this is like diving into the spelling bee. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a good point. And it really takes these characters seriously even though it is kind of showing that they are ridiculous and like you know your middle school drama like actually isn't a big deal in the grand scheme of things but it does take their concern seriously as well another show it kind of reminds me of (laughs) and this might be i think it's the tone of it but also the fact that these adults are playing children is you're a good man charlie brown Yeah, yeah i think it has a lot more of an edge than that yeah it also is very like a chorus line yeah oh yeah i could totally see that So it has a lot of DNA of different shows, but also poor Celia Keenan-Bolger. I mean, maybe she likes it, but she's been playing, she's currently playing a child on Broadway as we speak in To Kill a Mockingbird. (laughs) That's actually kind of insane. Yeah, and she, we saw her in Peter and the Starcatcher a few years ago where she was also playing a child. She just is The curse of Clara. You can only play 11-year-olds. I know. Well, I was kind of thinking, like, speaking of your good man, Charlie Brown, it seems like it would have been easy for Kristen Chenoweth to kind of get caught in that trap because she's so Mm -hmm. tiny and adorable. But she would actually be really good in this show. Yeah, <laughs> she would. But oh I my guess... god, doing all of those cute little things. <laughs> wow. <Well, laughs> like, write the letter. <laughs> yes, that is the part That's that we envision her. <laughs> it's parfait. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see her do a one woman spelling bee. Kristen Chenoweth, I know you're listening. <laughs> Please make our wish come true. So going back to William Finn, one of the, I think it's the New York Times Review, calls his music... Like if Sondheim wrote Sunday, Saturday morning cartoons, oh. which I think is a really, um, yeah, it's cute and very, very on point. Yeah. Yeah. Listening to the recording um, and having watched a performance of it, I think that the individual character songs are sometimes, uh, they're very kind of silly and cute, but they're never stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that where the score really does shine the most, for me at least, is um, not really the individual songs, but rather like kind of the group musical yeah. numbers. Yes. Um, and I think that that also, you know, kind of the... Um, way he incorporates everyone's voices and dramatic action into some of these songs that um, are not, you know, one of the characters kind of giving his spiel really shows off his talents as a composer. Yeah. In a season that has so many musical comedies, this one I think is by far the funniest and like the freshest and like the book is super, super strong. They do kind of an unusual thing for their Tony performance where they do like, they don't really sing that much. They highlight, you know, the jokes, like, the the spelling humor oh that God, they it's do. it's so funny. The jokes are very rapid in a way that you don't hear in shows very much. It's the style that I associate with 30 Rock, where almost every line, there's a joke in it somewhere. Miss Park, your word is phylactery. Phylactery. Definition, please. It's either of two small square leather boxes that are worn by Jewish men during morning weekday prayers. Sentence, please. Billy, put down that phylactery where Episcopalian. 
And out of anyone that they could have had for this Tony performance, it is very funny that it's Al Sharpton. I know. Oh, it's so funny. Everyone's so happy to see Al Sharpton. Mr. Sharpton. This fall, Mr. Sharpton will run for class president on a platform of racial equality and macaroni and cheese. And they do, like... They do such a good job in how they do the audience participation in this. Like, I can't really think of another show that does it better where it's like, first of all, it's all volunteer, which I think is very important. Yeah. It sort of adds like this kind of tension and unpredictability to it where it's like they're still in control, but it almost feels like they're not. Because I remember when we saw it, um, one of the guys was spelling, you know, they'll give them really easy words to keep them, the audience around when they want uh, the participant. And then they'll start giving them hard words when they're ready for them to go. And someone in our performance, I remember, was like nailing all the fucking words (laughs) and they couldn't get them off for a super long time. Well, you know what they'll do? I was watching. I watched a video with Celia Keenan-Bolger where she revealed what eventually they did is when they were ready to get the last person off they would give them a word that was like a fake word that they Mm -hmm. made up Mm -hmm. and no matter how they spelled it they would say they got it right so the audience would be like oh my god this person is amazing (laughs) and then they would get them off in the next word oh funny so they they really had it down and apparently what they would do if like someone was just nailing it constantly like they couldn't get them out they would give them the word there and, the, and the, the sentence would be, they're never going to get their word right. <laughs> That's so wonderful. Come on. I know. What, I, what do you not like? <laughs> Another thing I really like about this show is that it's a great option for, like, whatever amateur production you want to put on. Like, it's really great for high schools. It's really great for community theater because it's, like, it has room for a lot of different types of people in it. None of them have to be really good singers necessarily. Like thinking about Light in the Piazza where like every every woman in that is like a classical soprano. This is really like, you know, it's just funny and light and charming, but also has some depth to it. And you can do it in high school because it's like, it's not, you don't have all these kids playing adults like you do for a lot of shows. Like they can play younger than themselves. There is one particularly haunting Jimmy performance (laughs) of a kid doing this in the Broadway or Bus documentary. And it is so cute. And I think about it almost every day. Yeah. And and the thing about that is he's like a different type. He's like a really tall and skinny, gawky kid. And I think that part is usually cast as like a larger uh, person. So there is like a lot of flexibility. You can really cast like unconventional types uh, in these different roles. And thinking back to Big Little Lies when Reese Witherspoon's character (laughs) wants to do Avenue Q in her community theater production, I would suggest to her, maybe just try it. Try doing Spelling Bee. Yeah, doing Spelling Bee. So a fun little fact about Spelling Bee. So it ended up running for a few years, which is really nice. And it was the first show of the season to recoup its investment. And it only took 18 weeks after its opening because it only cost $3.5 million to produce as opposed to um, Spamalot, which was $12 million, and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which was more than $10 million. And it has, you know, a small cast. It only has five musicians. And so it costs less than $300,000 a week to run. Um, and Spamalot costs 500000 or more to run. Wow. Yeah. So that's kind of an interesting look into the uh, the economics of Where Broadway. Where did you get all that information? That's there, fascinating. There was, there was an article about it because it was like, you know, whenever whenever a show recoups, they, they They're write like, an article about it because I think <laughs> the vast majority lose a lot of money. Wow. I love hearing that. I know. That is... Everything about Spelling Bee is heartwarming. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, we were talking earlier about how long of a road Light in the Piazza had, how long it took for it to get to Broadway. This was from that original kind of improv play to this point. I think it was only 18 months. Yeah, it was really a quick turnaround. And considering how adventurous some of his other work is and probably how little in comparison to this it's produced, thinking of falsettos and a new brain, like, I'm glad that William Finn has a steady paycheck. Yeah, <laughs> Right. Me too. Well, I guess it's a. It was something that I thought was interesting. It was the woman who um, was with the show, who was um, Wendy Wasserstein's uh, nanny, was like when they were kind of developing it. Wendy urged her to make sure that she got her money, and yeah. she was like, "That's the advice I give to any young." Um, creative. It seems like she is Wendy Wasserstein's nanny, like she takes care of her. (laughs) (laughs) 
I feel like the rights for this probably were super complicated since it was so developed by the actors and like developed by actors who didn't all make the jump to the Broadway version. That seems like a super complicated situation to kind of hammer out. But yeah. I'm glad I'm glad they're getting paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk doubt. Don't pout. Time for doubt. (laughs) That was their pre-show announcement. (laughs) So doubt won best play that year, and it also won the Pulitzer. It won every award that you would want to win. It got its movie rights bought. So (laughs) yeah, Yeah, and not only did it get its movie rights bought, John Patrick Shanley, who wrote the play, was able to write and direct the movie, which is a real like that's a coup. I know. I feel like that never happens. Mm -hmm. It opened March 9th, 2005, and it closed July 2nd, 2006, which is a pretty good run for a play. Isabel, do you want to read the synopsis? Sure. Based on a few circumstantial details and a lot of intuition, the ultra-stern nun, Sister Aloysius, (laughs) believes that one of the priests at St. Nicholas Catholic Church and School has been molesting a 12-year-old boy named Donald Muller, the school's only African-American student. Sister Aloysius... I'm doing okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking really super Califristus. Recruits a young, naive nun, Sister James, to assist her in monitoring the suspicious yet charismatic Father Flynn. She also addresses her concerns to Donald's mother, who surprisingly is not horrified or even shocked by the allegations. Mrs. Muller is more concerned about her son getting into high school and avoiding a beating from his dad. The play concludes with a one-on-one confrontation between Sister Eliusis. (laughs) (laughs) You started with it and then... (laughs) Say it again. Aloysius. (laughs) Like delicious, okay. (laughs) Sister Aloysius and Father Flynn as she attempts to get the truth out of the priest. The big thing about this play is that you do not find out whether or not he did it. And and in interviews, the, the cast would say, so it was a one-act play, and the cast would say the second act was what happened when the audience left the theater and started debating what they thought happened, mm. which I think is uh, very true. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And the only people who know whether or not he did it are the playwright, John Patrick Shanley, and he told... Brain F. O'Byrne, and I'm assuming any other Broadway replacements, and he also told Philip Seymour Hoffman, who played the priest in the movie. Oh my god, that's so... That gave me tingles. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tim, you watched the the Broadway production. I watched the movie because I was with my boyfriend that night, and I was like, I'm not gonna make you watch this bootleg. (laughs) We're gonna watch something we're both gonna enjoy. So I was reading people who saw both the play and the movie, and a lot of people thought that Philip Seymour Hoffman played it way too guilty. So maybe that is a a pointer in the direction that um, he is guilty, but apparently who knows what Philip Seymour Hoffman was doing? I know, know, especially at that time. I know. He was an actor. So apparently on Broadway, it was a little more ambiguous i do agree that he did play it very guilty (laughs) in the play he doesn't really come off as guilty he comes off as definitely very defensive but also he feels defensive in a way that doesn't read as guilty it feels kind of this isn't about the situation this is about you not liking me right in a way that like having watched the bootleg i did not think he was guilty See, that, and that's sort of what other people were saying, too. And, like, this play and the movie also really, like, hits on every aspect. Like, this is such a rich premise, and I feel like it really executes every part of it beautifully. Like, you have the conflict of, like, old versus new in the Catholic Church, like, staying with tradition versus trying to kind of break out and move forward, and, like, the resentments that come from that because... That sort of would be uh, Sister Aloysius' motivation for wanting him out is that he uh, is a lot more progressive than she is. Mm. And then you also have the role of how women and nuns especially are like subservient and mistreated in the Catholic Church and men are really in these positions of power. And it also taps into the fear of 
parents when they're kind of sending their kids out into the world that like authority figures that are supposed to protect them are going to take advantage of them or abuse their trust. And then you also have the racial aspect where it's like he's the only African-American student in all white school and like how vulnerable he is socially there and like and then you also have that in the scene with the mother and i think you know i think i came in with a lot of expectations because as you know a play it really is and because of the movie adaptation i feel like it's you know when you think of like plays of the 2000s it's definitely on the list but i think that i was surprised by each character's motivation like especially Mm. the mother i was really surprised that I wasn't surprised in a negative way, but, you know, she's like, well, if this happened, it happened. Like, I don't want my son in the center of a scandal like this. And I think that while in our current day, that seems like an absolutely insane stance to take on it. But I think for many, many years, it was the actual reality. And I think that having that in the mix feels really honest in a way. I think that while the play has so many nuances, it feels really honest, and I think that reads really well. And I think it's definitely the right choice to leave it ambiguous whether or not he did it. Right, because this is not a morality play. Yeah. It's called Doubt. Ever heard of it? (laughs) I also like that they say the word doubt in it a hundred times. Yeah. It's like, you know what this play is about? (laughs) Also, Cherry Jones um, is so mean. (laughs) (laughs) What did you think of her performance? I thought that it was really incredibly evil. Um, (laughs) And like, also, I think that, you know, going back to what I was saying about how it feels really honest, but also unexpected, like my going into it, I was like, oh, she's going to be stern um, and like be this kind of like, you know, classic stern mother superior nun, but she's actually really nasty. And she's kind of on this level of like Greek tragic figure of Mm. like, being so blinded by her own crusade she's unable to see like the actual pain and destruction path of pain and destruction she's (laughs) leaving behind her uh i think that's totally uh spot on i was surprised too at how much the audience was laughing it was you know very funny in certain aspects you know it's got to be funny otherwise it's just gonna be this a painful slog also like when you Make enough tension, shit's funny. It's very, uh, a little priest coming after a half hour of Sweeney Todd. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not a little priest. I'm sorry. Um, worst pies in London. Yeah, that's true. Where it's like, I am ready to laugh. Just gotta <laughs> let the air out of the balloon a little bit. Yeah, right. And-, and I think that that was also something that surprised me about Light in the Piazza, too, is that the book itself is really funny. People love to go to the theater and laugh. <laughs> <laughs> if there's one thing we can take away from this season. Are you ready to talk about scary, scary, chitty, chitty? <laughs> I still don't think this car is a robot. (laughs) So Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was based on the popular and insane movie from the 60s. Isabel and I grew up watching it. You haven't haven't seen seen it. it. Oh, you've never seen it? You know, you're lucky. So this, I believe, was nominated for five. For five. And so one zero. Yeah, people really did not like it. It ran for almost 300 performances, which isn't great. Um, right, I'm sure it cost a gazillion dollars. Yeah. It was actually the most expensive musical of the season. It cost about $15 million. And the car itself was the most expensive Broadway prop of all time up until that point. So the synopsis is... An eccentric inventor, Caractacus Potts, sets about restoring an old race car from a scrap heap with the help of his children, Jeremy and Jemima. They soon discover the car has magical properties, including the ability to float and take flight. Trouble occurs when the evil Baron Bomburst desires the magic car for himself. The family joins forces with truly scrumptious and batty Grandpa Potts (laughs) to outwit the dastardly Baron and Baroness and their villainous henchman, the child catcher. So the, the guy who wrote this... Uh, who wrote the children's book was Ian Fleming, who wrote the James Bond novels. And Truly Scrumptious really is in line with his female characters' names. Mm -hmm. It's like the G-rated version. Yeah, and there's actually a lot of very Bond uh, stuff happening. Yeah, like the child catchers, super James Bond henchman style. What is wrong with Ian Fleming? Right, and (laughs) also like the fact that there's an island, like that's like (laughs) when they go to the scary island. Um, 
and they have gadgets. Like yeah. he's an inventor. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Just to go back to uh, this robot question, <laughs> supporting my original claim about the true star of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang <laughs> and the possible robot who was on stage this season, <laughs> in his review, Ben Brantley of the New York Times says, And who says Broadway has lost the human touch? The title character, an undisputed star of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, the lavish wind-up music box of a show that opened last night at the Hilton Theater, is an automobile that swims, flies, and rescues people in distress if they remember to say please. Chitty routinely receives more enthusiastic applause than any other cast members. She is allowed the final bow and the curtain calls. And the audience, no. <laughs> and the audience, sorry, Jan Maxwell, yeah, right. <laughs> and the audience claps along in tribute whenever her theme song is played, starting with the overture. The darn thing probably has a dressing room that would make Nathan Lane choke with envy. Yikes. I do think that is a compelling argument, but I actually just looked at the dates and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang opened after Light in the Piazza. Um. So it... I think it cannot be about the car. <laughs> so we're still searching for the answer. So uh, we can safely say Ben Brantley did not like the car. Or he loved the car. <laughs> he loved the car, right. He's just jealous. <laughs> no one claps for me like they <laughs> clap for Chitty. Uh, we watched a lot of promotional footage today, and I can say without doubt that it is much too scary. Yeah, and it said apparently it transferred from London where it was very popular which I think really sums up the difference between <laughs> British yeah. and American audiences. Him calling it a music box is so right because there's something like scary and archaic about it. It's not like, you know, a kind of Willy Wonka feeling. It's yeah. very um, sinister. And later he describes um, the woman who plays Truly Scrumptious as doing like Julie Andrews by way of Madame Tussauds, <laughs> which is such a good burn. They did not perform because they were not nominated for Best Musical. So I think we can uh, we can leave it at that. We can move along. Um, so the last nominated new musical that did not win anything only had one nomination. It was Little Women, starring the plucky Sutton Foster as Joe. <laughs> When reading about this, one of the reviewers made a really good point, which was, has this not already been (laughs) turned into a musical at some point? (laughs) I know. Um, It's it's crazy. It was actually crazy that this was the first Broadway production of a musical version of this. Right. They're not wrong to try and do it. And it has come out with at least one iconic power ballad, which is astonishing, which is also the source of the original uh, one of those musical theater compilations that were spreading like wildfire for a while. Right, but it's also, um, I mean, we can talk about this later, but another Jimmy favorite. Yes. It's yeah, uh, it seems like a lot of high schools are doing it, which I guess makes sense because it's probably still on the high school reading list. Oh, it's true, and that's fun, and it's classic. Got a lot of parts for women. (laughs) For plucky young ladies. tiny, tiny little women. It's also very G-rated. Right. Yeah, we were just watching a uh, behind-the-scenes um, <laughs> rehearsal video where Sutton Foster is like, I get to be a strong woman and I'm not showing my belly button and I don't say any bad words except for hell. <laughs> it's a good hill to die on. <laughs> I was actually surprised listening to the recording of it, though. I did not dislike it as much as I thought I would. Um, some of the songs are pretty decent. Do you think it's like internalized misogyny that people are like, little women? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like an old-fashioned musical like that really has to have something special about it. And I I don't know if her performance was enough. Like I, it seems like that was the only thing that was really exceptional. It was really astonishing, if you will. I also think that this raises the point that we've talked about before, um, finding source material that you could really whittle into a two-hour show. I mean, this, Mm. you know, 19th century novel is not, (laughs) you know, the right thing. Also, it moves through time in, like, a way that I think really lends itself to being good for film. Yeah. Well, I feel like both Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Little Women um, were musicals done for brand recognition and without a whole lot of thought about the source material. Yeah. But was anyone really clamoring for a Chitty Chitty Bang Bang musical except for the No, God I don't think they were clamoring British. for it, but like people know what it is. Yeah. 
That's true. It's like, you know, people watched it alongside Mary Poppins. I don't know if that had come out yet. No. Was this pre-Mary Poppins? I They're think- monsters. They're dumb. <laughs> they should have done that first. Oh, so it was already out in the West End, and it didn't come to Broadway until 2006. So it was pretty soon after. It's funny that uh, Ben Brantley compares... Sutton Foster's interpretation of Joe with Elphaba. But I think that the Elphaba comment makes sense because, um, you know, this is kind of a... I think it more literally touches on the themes that so many young women um, attach to Wicked. Yeah, and I think that's why this story... I mean, Greta Gerwig is making a new Little Women movie right now. Like, it's really stood the test of time, I think probably because of the character of Joe being so ahead of her time in terms of, you know, how she sees herself in society um it's really kind of amazing okay i think maybe we can wrap it up right um the one thing i have a couple things yeah I was yeah, yeah. we got I some think, closing comments. i think we can do some miscellaneous things do we have a wtf what is it called oh uh, what what <laughs> um i think the what for me is um the musical brooklyn um that was <laughs> not nominated for anything but sounds totally insane Um, and the music is so bad that there's this scene in the movie Adam's Fam- The Adam's Family Values where Wednesday and um, Pugsley are at summer camp and they're being tortured to be, like, nice um, or, like, to be, like, pleasant. And they have to, like, watch, like, a bunch of, like, movies like Annie and The Sound of Music to, like, torture them to, like, be not creepy anymore. And if I was doing this to some child, I would make them listen to the music of Brooklyn the Musical. <laughs> Um, I'll give you a quick synopsis. Using the play within a play structure, Brooklyn focuses on a group of five ragtag homeless musicians known as the City Weeds. The group periodically transform a street corner under the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge into a stage where they present their play about a Parisian singer named Brooklyn, named after the New York City borough from which her wayward father Taylor hailed. Orphaned when her depressed mother Faith hangs herself, the girl in quick succession is sent to live in a convent where she discovers her vocal talents, becomes a star, performs at Carnegie Hall, sets out in search of her father, who she discovers is a drug-addicted Vietnam War vet, and engages in a competition with local diva Paradise, Paradise spelled with a C instead of an S at the end, at Madison Square Garden. Can I just say, this sounds a lot like the plot of Hit List, the musical, (laughs) the fake musical from Smash. Is this Tony's The Rosetta Stone for Smash? <laughs> we also have the... Yeah, we also have I don't know. I just I I, 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 I don't I, know. <laughs> um yes, that does sound super crazy. Wow, um, and the music is awful, awful, awful. It's so, so, so bad. <laughs> um the recording um is available not on Spotify, but you can track it down and I listen to I kind of search YouTube to see like what songs from it um people perform. Um and there is one that um I saw a couple different renditions of that is absolutely horrible. I mean, it's time to talk about Spamalot winning Best okay. Musical, which is so bad. The producer gets up and he says, he makes a joke that falls totally flat where he's like, would it be suspicious if I don't use the teleprompter? No. Oh, if I use the teleprompter. Yeah, if I read off the teleprompter. If I read off the teleprompter. Would you be suspicious if I use the teleprompter? <laughs> and... I know. Nobody laughs. And everyone is, and like, there's this, yeah, something really falls over the audience and he has to go back. And Anna and I both vocalized so loudly. (laughs) It was so painful. Um, And then the structure of his acceptance speech is, I want to not thank the cast. Like, I want to not thank, um, you know, Eric Eric Idle for his wonderful score. And Eric Idle, like, gets on the ground and does, like, this weird little dance. Um, It's all just awful to watch i wonder i feel like do you think the audience reaction is just about him being really smug about it or do you think they're upset that spam a lot won because i I think it's probably both and and honestly why would he be so smug about it when they really did not clean up a lot of tony's like i don't i I, that comment almost didn't make sense to me because it didn't seem like it was in the bag to me for them at all no you're right like i like that seemed not only just like annoying but unnecessary and untrue that is just 
that could sum up spam a lot. <laughs> Not only annoying, but also unnecessary. <laughs> My closing <laughs> remark on spam a lot is I think in the first episode, I mentioned that it felt like an event, not like a play. And I think that, you know, something I learned from by the end of the recording this podcast is that spelling beat feels more like an event than a play, but in a good way. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's there. true. there. <laughs> what even is an event? Okay, do we have anything else we want to say? I think that might be... Um, my ideal threesome <laughs> <laughs> uh, performers would be with Angela Bassett and Ethan Hawke. You know, we Lovely. wrote that one down as a late in the game uh, <laughs> contender. I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really good one. All right, so... That is, that's that. That's that. That's a wrap on 2005. A very strong season with with also some enemies for us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you, Isabel, for Thank coming you. back. Thank hopefully, you for having me. Yeah, hopefully we'll have you back again in the future when we yeah. can. And our next episode is going to be the 1984 Tonys, which is the big showdown between La Cage Folle and Sunday in the Park with George. Also a completely wacky show, Candor and Ebb show called The Rink, um, starring, um, well, we'll find out if it's wacky or not. <laughs> um, the premise of it um, seems really out there, but fun. Yeah, yeah, those are just the, the headliners. There's also lots of crazy stuff waiting in the wings for us. You know the 80s were a weird time. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is going to be our first 80s episode. I'm excited and scared. Get out your shoulder pads. (laughs) (laughs) So as always, you can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And please rate and review us on iTunes because that will help us show up for other people. Yeah. And uh, please tell your friends and we uh, will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Those are the winners of the 59th Annual Tony Awards. Remember, support the theater wherever you are. Or better come to New York and see a show. Thank you and good night.